ultimately, I think a lot of us want to tell children that they're beautiful or that they're strong or that they're smart. But the reality is they don't learn by hearing what you say. They Mm -hmm. learn by seeing what you do with yourself. Yeah, you know, your first message in the book is like, you got to take care of yourself first and really believe that you are beautiful that you take care of yourself that you put yourself first it's like mm-hmm. putting your own face mask on yes, or like an exactly. oxygen mask on exactly first. yeah and and that's why with my daughters i constantly talk about trusting my body and and when it comes to um anything with them i say like oh i love that you're trusting your body hey guys welcome to be rad the podcast i'm your host kat hey what's up i'm carson and i produce the show Woohoo! On this episode, we had Tina Muir, who's been a longtime acquaintance of mine. I started listening to her podcast around 2016 and has just seen it grow. I've, I was super excited to have her on as a guest. We talked about how um, she's an advocate for women's sport, how she was known as the woman who lost her period. Um, her new book that's out, co-written with Zoe Rom, Sustainable Runners. And um, how she's an advocate for marginalized communities. It was super fun to talk to her. I, again, I was been a huge fan of her for a super long time. Yeah, she's really rad. I got to hang with her too at the level 100 a little bit. She's super cool. Yeah. Definitely, definitely an, an amazing episode. Yeah, she's a powerhouse. She does it all. Thanks to our sponsor, Delta G Ketones. I, as I said last week, I experimented with them on a 40 mile run and I, the 40 mile run just went horribly. I finished it, which I was stoked about, but I- It was 44 I, miles actually. Yeah, 44 miles, pretty, you know. Pretty far. I was rounding down. <laughs> <laughs> but it- um, Ultra runners tend to do that. They're like, oh, it was a hundred miler, but it was 112 miles or something. Yeah. I'm like, what the heck? Round down if it's a hundred miles, <laughs> like what's <laughs> the like, extra 12? <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy flex. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I took it, this disgusting energy drink and then drank the ketones and my stomach didn't like it. But it's been working before runs if I've taken it like 30 minutes before. So, um, so far, so good. I'm going to have another 30 miler this weekend and I'm going to try and take it on. And, and Yeah, I think your stomach didn't do so hot because of the energy drink that you ate. Mm-hmm. And also you tried some new uh, electrolytes that also didn't, didn't work. work so good. So I took it uh, when I was pacing cat the last 20 miles of that effort and it seemed to work great for me so um i guess let's keep experimenting and reporting back so all right should we take some before our work day yeah huge work day down the hatch baby down the hatch let's do it (sighs) the taste does not get easier (laughs) but the fact that we still take it lets you know that it's worth it and it works it's good stuff. I mean, I don't think it tastes that bad. <laughs> it's pretty intense, but <laughs> yeah. It actually, the white one especially doesn't taste that bad. Well, cool. Thanks, guys. Tune in. Cheers. Hey, man. Cool. Well, welcome to Be Rad the Podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and with me, I have Tina Muir, which is so crazy because I started listening to your podcast maybe in like 2015. Um, what Back before I was running for real, I forget, yeah. forget what it was, but... It was, it was Run to the Top, by, which was by a company, Runners Connect. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's when I was teaching, I was... Um, 
I, you know, had to run at like four in the morning and I did the same four mile loop um, over and over again, right by the school, just in case I, you know, something came up and I had to go to school or which happened all the time. Um, and uh, I, I associate your voice with that four mile loop. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And it's so cool. Um, but a little bit more about you, um, elite marathoner, podcaster, author, activist, you wear a lot of hats and it seems to just keep growing. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a glutton for punishment. I like to keep adding to my list of things I, I do. It's, a, not, it's not enough to uh, to do all those. Probably add another one. It's a dangerous game. Like, it it's, you, yeah, know, you know, this. Yeah, when you're not restricted by the nine to five, it's, mm-hmm. you know, things just open up and mm-hmm. it's like, a, um, I call it stoke trap. It's, oh, you know, like you get that. so excited and you yes. want to do everything and all of a sudden you're you think you have this great flexible job and then you're beholden to 15 obligations, you know, all over the country. Yes. I actually was just, uh, I watched a friend recently who, um, I watched basically him being pitched something, uh, by another friend and then watching him say, okay, let me go and think about it. And I was like, wow, I know. well done. Cause that's not easy to do because quite easy to just be like yeah sure absolutely I'll figure it out and it's so funny because the more I mean I'm very much still pursuing professional running Mm -hmm. goals and um uh you know it's so interesting because a lot of these obligations really get in the way of the actual Mm -hmm. running and so it's you know I just got an opportunity I got texted by a manager was like hey can you go to Argentina next week to for like a photo shoot and I'm racing in February and my gut instinct was like, obviously, you know, and then, then I, it was a big deal to take a second and say no, you know, it takes time. It is hard. Yeah. But anyway, I like to ask this question with all my guests because, you know, I know um, who you are based on your podcast and based on following you for many years. But, um, you know, you get a new perspective when you know, I get to hear how you see yourself to the community. So how do you see yourself to the community? Yeah, I think as, as you said a few minutes ago, it's forever evolving. Um, I think I've had kind of some words that people have associated with me over the years. Um, the, the first one, I think, being the girl who lost her period, which you knew about as well. Um, and, and then it's kind of, then it's shifted to, um, me talking about sustainability in recent years. That's something that is a big passion of mine. Um, but most of all, I like to think of myself as someone who helps people to see that you don't have to reach perfection. You don't have to be, um, showing perfection or your version of it all the time. I really pride myself on being my business is called running for real for a reason. Um, showing people that it's okay not to not to get everything right all the time or to try something and fail or to um, be vulnerable with it with yourself and if you feel obligated to the, with the world or sharing whatever you want um, and sharing those ups and downs. So I, I like to think that I am that maybe permission giver for a lot of people to not get everything right all the time. Yeah. And how did that happen? Because again, like I have been following you for a long time, mm-hmm. like way before you became the the girl who lost her period, way before you, um, you know, but I think before it was like the, 
the elite marathoner who mm-hmm. loved desserts, which I was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> you know, um, run fast, eat sugar. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it, was there a moment where you were like, oh, things need to change? Or what, was it just pretty gradual? Cause in terms of my like body? Yeah, or- all of it. Like it, it mm-hmm. seemed to be, you know, um, very much you, you, from my perspective at first, you seem to be very vulnerable, but then, um, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the illusion was kind of cracked when mm. you ta- openly talked about losing your period, mm-hmm. um, which like I stopped, I was running D1 collegially and I actually stopped because I was, you know, it was the, the same cycle of, you know, I, and I also was a late bloomer, so like mm. got, you know, my period late and was going through everything kind of in college, you know? And so I, uh, um, I, I had no idea. And so was there like a moment where you were like, Oh, I, I need to change this or was it pretty gradual? It was gradual in many ways. And, and as I am someone who I, I find it, I don't want to say easy to be vulnerable, but I definitely, it comes to me more naturally to be able to share like the embarrassing things that happen to me or the struggles that I'm going through. Um, and there were many occasions during those, uh, you know, from my collegiate years on through the running as a, as an elite, elite marathoner, um, where I felt like I was lying to the world because, um, you know, I, elite runners at that time were very much showing off a, an image of, I've got everything down. Don't show your weakness. Don't show that you had a bad day. Just make everyone else think this is easy for you. And so that didn't sit well with me and particularly me kind of revolting against that, but yet still having a piece of me that I didn't share ate away at me. But over the years, I really, uh, it just started to gnaw away at me more and more that like, this is not good. This is not healthy. I noticed my behaviors changing. um, And then, you know, I think a key moment for me was my dad saying he could feel the bones in my back. Um, and not saying it in a uh, good way. It was very much like a concerned way yeah. of saying that. And that for me was a real like, okay, I, I've got to do something about this. But it took me a full year before I actually did. Yeah. So even, even that moment wasn't, wasn't a quick one. I uh, still had to get used to the idea of like showing that side of me when no one was talking about that piece of it, even though I knew a lot of runners were going through it. Yeah. That's so tough, especially, you know, uh, it's definitely changing, which I think is really mm. good, but it's not only there, there, it's like a competitive thing around food in elite running, or at least it was when I was running collegiately, but it's also, there's a lot of judgment around mm. if someone is under eating, you know, I remember mm. that people talk about it. And so yeah. it's like this uh two-sided coin where you you almost can't win as a woman in that and and so of course it's like it's really hard to change I just want to touch on you know just for I think this is valuable for people who might be going through it what were some of those behaviors that you noticed that you were um that were changing yeah I mean uh I think a big one is social situations so I would um if I I would maybe want to back out of a social situation where I thought they were going to have foods that I wasn't comfortable eating. Or I remember going to visit a family friend in Indiana and she took me to this restaurant and it had a, a, 
a buffet and I remember looking around thinking I'm not eating any of it like very much judgmental that it's toxic food I'm not touching that yeah um and then I think a big piece was like uh and this is when I knew it was starting to affect my performance like I would eat lunch and then a few hours later I'd be hungry and I'd be like annoyed at my stomach like you cannot be hungry again how dare you like you're insulted by it um and I almost like talk to my stomach like fine I'll give you some carrots and then you shut up and you can wait for dinner and things like that like my body was hungry because it was hungry because it needed fuel but I would make it wait and so I think it was behaviors where I was choosing when to eat over what I actually my body was asking for which I think came out in the sugar so at night I would be like binging on sugar because I hadn't eaten enough all day yeah um and so I always thought, oh, I, I always l- leaned on, I have a sweet tooth. And I do like sweet things, like still yeah. now. But then it was like, I have to eat something sweet right now. Yeah. And that was the urgency of my body saying, help me. We need me. food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then when you went through int- reintroducing good healthy foods, did you seek out help for that? Um, either nutritionist or therapist, or did you just go through it? Not initially, actually. At first, I was very adamant that I did not have a problem with food. Um, You know, I I had spoken to various people over the years and they had said like, oh, you're eating enough. Um, And, you know, we're all very good if we want to be of, you know, you you get told to do a food log and you're like, oh, well, I did eat all these things today. It may not be a typical day for me, but today I did technically eat all these things. So I'm not lying. (laughs) Like I knew that I wasn't being completely truthful. Um, and, and another behavior that I would do was like, I had to run 10 miles or more to be able to eat what I wanted. And that's obviously a red yeah. flag. Um, and so I didn't at first, but then um, Nancy Clark, who's a well-known dietitian, reached out to me and was like, I'd like, can I help you? Was and this after you had talked about losing your period? Yes, this okay. was after. This was a few months after and I, I took oh, maybe six weeks after. Um, and it was only then that it dawned on me like, oh, wow, all this time. Like she would tell me to eat like we she does what she called buckets of like I had to have 600 calories by this time and then another 600 by this time. And I was aware by lunchtime I was eating two to three times what I had been eating before. Yeah. And so that really was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I have not been doing this all along. Um, and for a while I was ravenous, like I couldn't fill the hole. Like I was just so hungry all the time. Um, and then all of a sudden it just stopped. Yeah. Like I just, my hunger went away. Not that like I didn't get hungry, but like <clears throat> just the hole yes. was filled. Yes. Yeah, I totally my body know. was like, okay, we're good. So <laughs> I worked with her. Um, and I, yeah, was kind of talking to a therapist all along. I have a good friend who's a therapist, which helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, the dietitian piece was critical for me. Yeah. What's some advice that you'd give to someone who's maybe starting that journey? You know, it's it's mm-hmm. like, as you talked about, there's a lot of stages. It was like the first, like, admitting that you yeah. had the problem silently, quietly mm-hmm. to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then it's a year later admitting that you need to do something about it. Yeah. And what would you tell someone who's maybe at the beginning of that? Um, I would say be gentle with yourself. I think that is one thing I've noticed in common with most people who are working through this is we're very hard on ourselves. A lot of runners are in general, but particularly if you're that kind of perfectionistic person who wants to get everything right, who wants to, you know, we'll take, I'm going to eat well for my running and then take it to an extreme. So 
uh, with myself and other people I've spoken to, we tend to be very hard on ourselves, high standards, um, got to get it right, don't want to mess up. And so being gentle with yourself and understanding that that probably comes from some, somewhere within you um, and it's a protective mechanism in some form. So being gentle with yourself in that way. But I would say the step one is working, finding a registered dietitian yeah. um, because they will help you with seeing what you are missing, what you need. Um, and obviously, ideally, someone who works with runners. Um, but then also they will be able to see whether there is a psychological component, in which case then you can start speaking to someone about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It is, like, astonishing how, you know, when you're running at a high level, that fueling, if you're doing it right, truly becomes, like, a part-time job. Yeah, You absolutely. know, it's crazy. And I, you know, my, not only my relationship with food, but my, well, I, you know, definitely my relationship with food, but also with fueling has mm. like totally evolved in the last mm. 10 years. And, mm. and now I'm at the point where I'm like truly fueling for performance. And I'm like, you know, I'm ta- working with a dietitian. And it's like, you know, minimum 500 grams of carbs a day. And I'm yeah. like, how has I, have, yeah. how have I been living without that for so long? Yeah. It's crazy. And it, it, that is just like a truly, sometimes a very hard number to hit mm. when you're trying really mm-hmm. hard, but mm-hmm. like, you know, and that's, that's when you think like, you know, um, you, you not, if you're, if you almost think you're under fueling, then you, you probably are, yes. you know, and there's a lot of elements to, to work mm. in there. So it's, it's one of those things that you, you know, for me, at least I need help at every stage yeah. of trying to do it, you know? Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of that. And I, there's other signs, like particularly, um, you know, it, your period is just one of the signs, but like being cold all the time or having having a lot of digestive issues, um, uh, those are kind of two of the the main ones there. But there's like so many other factors that can be indicators that we just write off. Being tired, tired, just all the like time. abnormally yeah. tired. Like I'm a pretty goofy, energetic person, mm-hmm. and I if I'm not, you know, if I if I'm not, you know, I've I'm you know, hyperactive ADHD was mm. medicated heavily when I was a kid. And mm. if that part doesn't come out of me, no matter how much I'm training, I know that like, oh, yeah, I, you know, probably didn't eat enough Feel, today yeah, yeah. Sure. or yesterday or the day mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so your transition out of elite marathoning seemed to happen around the same time. Um, you know, and I find that so interesting because, you know, now you're, running at a very high level on on trails um you're just kind of starting but the the marathon culture i and not this isn't a knock but i think it's an uh evolution and maybe even a revolution Mm. um especially in the female space in marathoning that like people are noticing that you know sometimes in that that um there there's so much weight on women who are elite runners and, um, and kind of what you're doing has changed that, I think. And, and so can you talk about that transition out of elite marathoning? And did you ever think you were going to go back? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, it was honestly only this year that I even started thinking about trying hard again. And I don't know if that was, I was very fortunate, even though I had, uh, Red S didn't have a period for so long, um, 
wasn't fueling, I didn't really have many injuries. And actually I've had my worst injury ever this year of all years running like less than half of what I did before. Um, but I think, uh, I, so I don't know if it was just, I didn't get injured much. And so I just, I just felt so burned out. Um, and so no, I didn't want to go back there. And also it felt I, with, and, and what I'm discovering with the trail and ultra world, which I love, and it reminds me of my cross country days as a high schooler is that with marathoning, it is so much about these intense, grueling, mentally just destroys you it makes you tough but like workouts like nine by a mile or three by five mile things just really and on cement where it's hard and the pounding um and those thing those workouts even now are just don't sound enjoyable to me but I love that with the working into this trail world and ultra world now it's not it's a different kind of fatigue and I enjoy that um and so I haven't thought about going back to marathoning uh, and I do a lot of guiding for visually impaired runners or other runners in the community to give back because that is my way of staying connected with that world because I have no desire to go back there. And yeah. I do think, to be honest, part of that is a bit of a defense me- mechanism because it's, uh, it's very vulnerable to go out in a marathon and say, well, I'm going to run my best, but my best today is going to be 30 minutes slower than it was before. Yeah. Um, so it can almost like hide behind the guiding in some ways that I'm, I'm not trying my hardest anyways. Um, but yeah, it just, it just burned me out in a way that I just couldn't even think about going back. And, and this year, as I said, is the first year I've actually considered actually even wanting to commit and yeah. try. Yeah. And, uh, so I guess we'll, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> You talked about, I, I like love what you said that it's a defense mechanism because I totally see that and understand it. <clears throat> um, and, you know, but you also talked about how you're very good at being vulnerable. And I was wondering, even when you said that, does that apply to racing? And has it always applied to racing? Because it do, it is very vulnerable to try your best at something, you know, and unabashedly. And I almost think sometimes, you know, self uh, or under fueling is a way of self-sabotage, yeah. you know? T- so you don't, sure. so you have like, maybe like, oh, I was maybe under fueled. Mm. Like I know at least I've done that in races, mm. at least during the race, mm. you know? I, I, I don't think, I can't think of many occasions as a marathoner where I went for it and kind of redlined and hung on. There's maybe two or three that come to mind, but for the most part, I do feel like I always held back. A little bit. I was always that person with the negative split who was passing a ton of people at the end. But again, you don't have, which feels good, but you don't have that vulnerability of knowing you gave everything out there. And actually, um, when I was at Havelina earlier this year, crewing Ryan Montgomery, I um, he was uh, he was saying because he already had his golden ticket for Western States, mm-hmm. he was like, "I'm gonna kind of go out there and go for it a bit, like." with 20 miles to go, he was saying that. And I remember thinking like, wow, that that is a very vulnerable place to be, to say, I'm gonna put myself out there at like, yeah. you know, 20 miles to go, because I don't think I ever did that. Yeah, um, I think I always held that level back. So even though I can be vulnerable in my voice, I don't know if I've ever really been vulnerable in that way you're referring to. Yeah. Um. And as you transition to trails, you know, I'm curious to hear 
you know, are you going to try hard? And do you think you'll apply that same vulnerability that we saw, Ryan? Mm. I don't know. I think trail definitely I have more opportunity to. I definitely didn't leave it all out there in my first trail race my, but mm-hmm. that was going from my longest race being a marathon to a 50 mile so and you won so other... you didn't need to <laughs> <laughs> yes it, it went well um but there was the vulnerability wasn't needed there um I do want to try uh I did feel a bit disheartened that I, I told you this earlier this year that I ended up with a Haglund's deformity on my heel uh in that first attempt at even trying to train again um, and so for a while I thought, oh, I don't know if this is even going to happen. Um, but I do think I would like to give it a go uh, with two young kids and the work that I do. I don't think realistically I'm going to be able to do what the top elite marathoners and um, elite ultra runners are doing. Um, but I would love to go somewhere in the middle, like, you know, yeah. for me get to 70 miles a week doing some, you know, specific long runs, not just haphazardly throwing them in there when I get the opportunity to. Um, But I guess we'll see because it's all going to depend on how my body handles it. I'm 35, not 25 like I was before when I was running. So I don't know how this body is going to handle the uh, intensity of increasing everything. So. Yeah, I think the beautiful thing about trails um, is, as you said, it's a lot more forgiving on mm-hmm. the bot, and you still do some hard, hard running. Yeah, you know, but it's not as um, you do a lot of it on soft terrain. Yeah, you know, uh, like you can do threshold work on trails, and the mm-hmm. pace doesn't matter at all mm-hmm. because you're going, mm-hmm. you know, up and down mountains, and that mm-hmm. it, I find it to be way more forgiving. You yeah, do, and you just become a freaking aerobic tank, mm-hmm. you know, on the trails, which I. I think in a lot of way I was fitter, you know, I was a pretty fast track athlete. Um, uh, and then when I, but when I transitioned to trails, I think my, my aerobic system was actually better, even if my turnover wasn't quite there anymore. Yeah. 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 I actually remember I did a trail marathon, uh, about nine months postpartum with my second and I, I think it was like four hours or somewhere around there. Um, yeah and um the next day because all I'd ever known was the soreness of the roads and the next day I wasn't sore and I was like how how can this be Mm -hmm. and then it really makes you think about oh you know maybe as human beings we're not supposed to be running on cement (laughs) this this is how like our bodies were designed to run on the trails um or maybe not designed to run but like that's this is more natural to our bodies. And I just was blown away yeah. that I wasn't sore. Yeah, that you day. could run so hard, yeah. give it your all, and, like, still uh-huh. sit in a toilet without a brace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not have to lean on the toilet yeah. holder to stand up. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's crazy. I'm ex- I, th- I hope you do try hard in the trails because yeah. I think I found that, you know, marathoners – do well especially Mm. um ones who have seen the ups and downs of marathoning for Mm. a long time and maybe have not just like been very good at it for a long time yeah you know um I I hope so I still feel a bit too scared of you know I, I still remember interviewing Courtney years ago and her saying about going not being able to see for the last 12 miles oh, of yeah. what, I can't remember what race run, rabbit, run. <laughs> and I just I could not wrap my head around how someone could push that hard to not be able to see and could finish 
Yeah, and so for me, that concept of being there still seems such a long way away. Yeah, but I hope that. To be fair, that's never happened to me. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and I've grown a lot of hundreds. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So if that's the standard of what hard is, then I I don't know if I'll reach that. That's not the standard. I think Courtney has (laughs) entered a new dimension of what hard is for. You know, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Mm Yeah. You know, I would, I would love, you know, speaking of just like this transition, I would love to hear more about run for real or was Mm -hmm. it running for real and how how that came to be. Yeah. It's funny. I actually launched it right when I stopped running, which was the intention was to launch it. I just didn't know it was going to coincide. Um, and around that time, because I had planned on launching this business, I was stepping away from working with runners connect um, into my own thing. I wanted to make a place where I could really give people that freedom to be themselves and say, this is really hard or I'm struggling or a friend of mine is racing this weekend and I was meant to be racing and I really want to be supportive, but it's hard, you know, just really speaking to those runner challenges that a lot of the time went. So I wanted to launch this But then that was right around when I quit running and I didn't know it was going to quit. But then I went through a real tough um, trying to be compassionate with myself because in my head, I quit running. So I was a quitter and I everyone would in my head be like, I don't want to hear from you. You has been like, go away. I want to hear from someone who's in it. But actually, it didn't work that way. And it allowed me after all the years of doing what I needed, what I wanted, my training. It really allowed me to be supportive of other people in their running journeys, which I really loved. And so it started out as a podcast and a community. Um, and that community is like self-sustaining now on Facebook. I'm not, too, I don't, Facebook's not my favorite thing in the world, um, but they love Facebook. And so they are on there every day. And so I mm-hmm. check in from time to time, but it's mostly just the community is like there engaging every day which I love um and then since then it's kind of I've I've developed and and really shifted the podcast um towards getting to know some of the stories of people who are doing amazing work behind the scenes in the community but aren't typically celebrated or given a platform for that and so I've got to hear amazing stories of people who have you know built something out of nothing and I love watching those journeys yeah yeah can you give me an example Uh, my favorite example to give is there's two guys from Detroit Joe uh, Robinson and Lance Woods who founded uh, We Run 313 in Detroit one uh, they come from two sides of Detroit they came together started a running uh, group and it's now the largest run club in Michigan Wow. which I think is just amazing and you know they have changed the culture you know Detroit running culture is is you know running is very popular there now and a lot of that is due to them but they're not you know typically people that you see everywhere so yeah um I really enjoy stories like this yeah it's and it's cool because it's like kind of mirrors what you've been trying to do and it's mm-hmm. happening on different scales all mm-hmm. around the country yeah it so it's you know, this is just out of curiosity. And I think a lot of people like to know the backside of companies like run Mm -hmm. for real and, um, cause it's grown and now you have Mm -hmm. employees and, and, um, you know, it's a full-time thing. And 
to someone who sees, you know, who wants to work in the industry, uh, but doesn't quite know where to start or doesn't mm. want to necessarily work for a brand because they want to make a difference. Like how did that grow and how did that evolve and how were you able to, um, like, what was the process to building mm. this amazing company that gives back to the sport? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think a lot of it, it, the the most common answer that I'm given on my podcast when I interview these people who have built something is they build what they wish they had either had as a role model for them when they were when they were younger or in an important mm-hmm. period of their life in their growth. Um, what they wish they had seen, what they wish they had had, what they wished was available to them. So I think the key thing would be what do you need? Or what do yeah. you what do you end up talking to your friends about often? So I mean, for me right now, a, a sustainability is kind of what what people come to me for, um, and a lot of that is because I had a lot of people asking me what should I be doing, and so I thought, well, if people keep asking me these questions, then there's a curiosity there, and so I would say to someone to create something that is a passion to you that you have noticed is missing. And even if that seems like a very niche and, you know, there aren't many people who combine these, whatever whatever intersection that is at, there's probably a community out there if you've thought about it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if not, you're, you, you're building something that matters to you. And I would also say to, to be patient um, there's so many examples of people who have started these uh, groups or clubs or communities and they're huge now. Yeah. But they'll talk about how they went six months and had three people show up who was their like sister and two friends. Yeah. You know, so you have to trust. Totally. Well, even in the podcast world, they'd like tell you, don't even look at <laughs> anything for a year. And like I'm a year yes. in now and it's finally starting to grow, you know, and it's it's easy to hear and listen mm. to that advice, but hard to do when you're six months in and pouring a lot of resources into it, time Absolutely. and energy and love. And then it's mm-hmm. like, you're like, hmm, <laughs> I thought this yeah. would be something, but it's only been six months, you know? Mm-hmm. So. And that's where the runner in us can come in handy because um, we're used to kind of being in the grind and exactly. thinking, is this ever going to work out? Yeah. And trusting that like it will. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's hard, I think. I've actually had many people who I know who are prominent public figures who have tried to do something um, and it's not, you know, they maybe have a massive audience and they try something and it's still quite small and mm-hmm. they're thinking, but why? Why is this not translating? But it's the same for everyone. You've got to, if you keep doing it, keep showing up keep, and it's something that's a passion to you, people will be drawn to the energy that you are giving off around that, yeah. not necessarily... Um, you know, it's not necessarily about what you're doing. It's it's the way you've... People like to be around someone who's giving off an energy of loving what they're doing. Yeah. The passion is everything, yeah. you know, and it's contagious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people, yeah. and, and then also just building trust, you know, yeah. building trust that, it's, that you are passionate enough that it's going to be around, yeah. you know, and that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, congrats on the book launch, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been exciting. I... Had no idea that you and Zoe were friends until I saw, um, until she told me about a year ago that you guys were <laughs> writing a book together. How did that come to be? Yeah, uh, Zoe is someone that many people had said to me over the years, you two should meet, you two should meet, you two would be best friends. Um, have you met Zoe Rome? And I kept saying, no, like, I, don't, I followed her. And she likes to say that we were kind of mutually admiring each other. And yeah. our relationship <laughs> yeah. started by like, 
liking each other's posts and mm-hmm. then maybe commenting. It sounds like it's like a marriage that we, <laughs> we and then so we started commenting and then we started like tweeting at each other. And then one day she posted about composting and <laughs> that's our like love language between us. And I was like, right, Let's composting. Yeah. Hi Zoe, I've got to talk to you. Um, and so that tweet on uh, composting gave me the courage to reach out to her and yeah, we like hit it off straight away. And it was less than six months later, I um, was you know working on this idea for a book and I I remember this so well. I went into my backyard and I was walking around and I was nervous and I was like, "Will you? Would you? Would you want to write this with me?" And she was like, "Yes." It's kind of, it kind of was like a "Will you marry me?" <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and then we just took it from there. Um, and we come from such different. Um, her writing style is very much, you know, from Trailrunner magazine, from writing for these publications where she had to take herself out of the picture and keep mm-hmm. it very like subjective, uh, objective, objective. <laughs> and um, for me, mine was very casual. So we had this nice middle voice between us that was, you know, real and um, vulnerable, but also had the kind of chops behind it to, yeah. to be, to get the message across. So, yeah. And, you know, sustain, it's sustainable runners. That's what it's called. Right? Becoming a sustainable, Becoming a sustainable runner. runner. Yeah. And how did, you know, so it sounds like you had this idea for the book and you wanted to, and did it evolve? And what was the, you know, did you just want to, you know, my take from the book was like, I, it's, you don't have to be perfect, <laughs> which yes. I, you know, appreciated <laughs> as someone who has a ton of guilt around mm. my own footprint mm-hmm. with the travel, do mm-hmm. my best to offset it mm-hmm. with goo wrappers that, you know, sometimes I recycle. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I live in Hawaii. It's not yeah. even worth it to That's send, it. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so, how you know, was that always the goal of the book or did you guys kind of come to that, you know, while talking to each other that like, oh, you don't have to be perfect to, to be sustainable? I mean, I think we had both thought about that. Um, I definitely was aware that the environmental activists that were out there were scaring most people in terms of I mean still now when people are around me they get nervous thinking that I'm going to yell at them for having a water bottle in their hand Um, but the activists were very much portraying this message of you need to be vegan you need to never fly you need to um, call up your senator and yell at them and I had noticed (laughs) that most people were putting their fingers in their ears and pretending that climate change is not a thing and I recognize that there's no way we're going to be able to come together and, and change things if we're not getting that middle percentage of people who maybe aren't passionate about this. They're nervous. They have anxiety about it. They think about it and worry about it. But like you, you, you they have guilt. But where do I begin? And mm-hmm. if you're being told where you begin is become a vegan and call up your senator, most people are going to be like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so I, I, I knew that we had to find a way to bring those people in. Mm-hmm. Um, and both Zoe and I had stories of what we had learned along the way that we wanted to share. So mm-hmm. I think it had, was always there, but um, developed as we went through and, and had the other threads of community and individual perspective on that as well. Yeah. So what are maybe like three things you'd say to someone that's trying to become <laughs> a sustainable runner? Um, well, I would say that we broke the book into three parts. Um, 
as an individual, your own relationship to your sport, your relationship to yourself, um, your relationship to your community, how your community levels you up, and then the environmental piece. So the first thing I would say is you can't even think about taking care of your community and your and the planet if you're not taking care of yourself, if you don't have a good relationship to yourself. Or like we talked about at the beginning, if you are thinking about food all day long, you're mm-hmm. not going to be thinking about like what you can do to to have more purpose and meaning and community in your life because you're brain is on survival mode of mm-hmm. I need food yeah um, and so I would say number one is to think about yourself and your own um, relationship to yourself and if that needs work start there um, I would say find ways to talk about it is the biggest key in the environmental side of things even if that's hey hey I brought some um, I'm trying to do meatless once a week and I brought some vegetarian sausages to this cookout so that's a reason to talk about it you just brought that Mm -hmm. up um and three I would say to you're more likely to be able to progress along this journey if you forgive yourself if you have compassion if you're beating yourself up over every decision you make you're never you're going to get analysis paralysis and you're not going to get anywhere but if you I used to get so frustrated like going through an airport I'd wander around trying to find something that wasn't going to have an impact. And then it was causing me so much stress. I wasn't eating much because I was overthinking it. And so just forgiving it and then making a choice when you have the opportunity to. Yeah. But yeah. I, it's so funny that you say that in an airport because I was doing this thing for a while that in order to keep myself accountable, I would collect all of the trash that I produce from the start of travel to the end, just so I could reduce the amount of trash that I was producing. But Mm -hmm. what ended up happening is I was not eating, like you said, you know, Mm -hmm. I was just not eating, not drinking water because like the cups included, like sometimes Mm -hmm. they won't fill your water bottle at an airport. So like, then I'm like, oh, I'm on the six hour flight. And I guess like I had one bottle of water that I blew in 30 minutes, (laughs) you know, um, And that started to give me a lot of, it's a good way to be aware of how Mm. much you produce because it's a lot of trash, Mm -hmm. you know, Yeah. and that you produce when you're flying. It's like just crazy. But Mm. um, like you said, it's sometimes the choice isn't there and not beating Mm. yourself up when the choice, Mm. when you're, it's like the, the choice is like taking care of yourself or not producing trash. You know, sometimes you got to choose yourself and that's okay. Yes. Well, and I had a, about a year ago, I had just such a perfect example of this with flying, where I was upgraded um, to first class for the first time on a flight to, uh, I want to say Reno. And I, they came through the aisle and they said, will you be dining with us today? And I was like, uh, is that really <laughs> yeah. like eating? Yes. Um, and so then he was like, what do you want? And I, so I got my food and they brought it out in like a like a china dish with like you know actual silverware mm-hmm. um and the people from the you know main cabin kept coming through to go to the bathroom and you're like sitting there and then I, I got thinking about it I was like it would be so easy for in that situation me but other people who are up in first class to say oh you know you should be reducing your plastic intake when they were given a reusable mm-hmm. dish so yeah, of course you're going to think that when back there, the rest of us, me usually, but in that, yeah, everyone else is say handed a plastic cup. They don't have a choice in that matter. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, and uh, so it's, 
it's very much we're not Zoe and I live in the same world that everyone else does and sometimes you're handed things sometimes um you know I might say can I have a coffee made in my reusable mug and I watch them make it in a in a um paper cup and pour it into my thing and I'm like (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't my choice um and so yeah forgiving yourself and understanding that we need to collectively work together and hold the airlines accountable and say hey when are you going to shift to compostable cups hey when are you going to offer you know the opportunity to fill your own bottles Mm -hmm. rather than beating ourselves up over a decision we don't get choice in making Mm -hmm. oh exactly (laughs) Uh, I think this is a pretty good transition. We're going to wrap up here pretty soon, but I love this question for this podcast because, again, it gets to, it, you know, I get to know you in a way mm. that I don't just listening to your podcast. Mm. And, um, what's something that makes you proud that, you know, you haven't talked about before? Hmm. What's something that makes me proud? I mean, I this, this is a tough thing because I feel like I'm vulnerable to an extent that I struggle to find things. Yeah. That I um, what is something? Um, I I guess actually I haven't talked about being proud of um, as a mother of two young girls. I have gone from as we talked about at the beginning in a place where I really didn't like my body. I would lift up my shirt multiple times a day to look at my stomach. I would obsess over the way I looked um from that kind of mindset around my body to a place now where I am proud of my body and also my daughter will say the other actually yesterday she was standing in the mirror and I and I said um I said look at those two beautiful girls as in me and her and I said um and she said yeah we are we are two beautiful girls and so she I'm proud that I have managed to not only overcome the relationship I had with myself, but then portray to my daughters a healthy way of looking at themselves. And they often say things like, I have a really cute video of my now five-year-old being uh, two and a half and singing in the mirror, I just love me, I just love me. (laughs) And she was like singing about the things that she loved about herself. And so I'm proud of that, that I've overcome that bad relationship and now managed to kind of break the cycle yeah. and portray a different message to That's my daughter. so incredible and mm. so hard to do. And sometimes something that I wonder, I'm like, man, mm. I really hope I do a good job of that. Yeah. What, what's some, you know, what are, what's something that you can tell to parents, especially mothers to mm. daughters that, you know, are, have struggled with body image in the past and want to make sure that they break their cycle with their daughters? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be the message that is the hardest thing to do, which is you you can't say to your daughter, like in that situation I mentioned, I couldn't say, oh, you're beautiful. Yeah. Because you can't tell them one thing and then not say it about yourself. So that's why I had to say we. Um, And I really would say, even if it feels forced at first, trying to show them that you are proud of your body, even if you have to pick on areas that, maybe on you maybe have some areas of yourself that you're not comfortable with and but you might say wow my arms are so strong they can carry groceries in even if you take it down to a basic level of life tasks I'm wow my arms are so strong for carrying these Mm -hmm. or like um I love that I can give good hugs or something like that um because ultimately I think a lot of us 
want to tell children that they're beautiful or that they're strong or that they're smart. But the reality is they don't learn by hearing what you say. They mm-hmm. learn by seeing what you do with yourself. Yeah. And so even if you feel forced to say those things about yourself, doing it because that is how they're going to learn different. It goes back to that same message that, you know, your first um, message in the book is like, you got to take care of yourself first and really yes. believe that even if you're, you know, talking the talk before you walk the walk, you yeah. know, that you are beautiful, that you take care of yourself, that you put yourself first. It's like putting your own face mask on yes, or like uh, exactly. oxygen mask on exactly. first. Yeah. And, and that's why with my daughters, I constantly talk about trusting my body. And, and when it comes to um, anything with them, I say like, oh, I love that you're trusting your body. And like, actually yesterday walking my daughter to school, she said something like, you know, sometimes it feels like my foot has pricks in it in the morning. And I realized what she was saying was her feet gets a bit numb in the cold, but like she knows her body well enough to understand that the pricks, as she was saying, um, was her body telling her something and she recognized that. That's amazing. She's five. She's five. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You've done a good job. She's also very, uh, yeah, she just is a very introspective person. So I don't think I've done all the work there, but yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. And she's the oldest. (laughs) Yeah. She's the oldest. And then your younger one is two. Is three. Three. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, well, thank you so much for having you, you on or for coming on my podcast. It's so cool to have you here yeah. after listening to you for so long. No, I appreciate all that you have done in the space. And, um, you know, likewise, I've, I, I, we, we uh, communicated via email a few years ago when after you had reached out to me many years ago. And yeah. I was so like, wow, that was Kat that was reaching out <laughs> to me all those years ago. So I love that we've kind of come to this full circle moment. I also want to thank you for giving me amazing advice earlier this year um, about not going into Havelina injured, or I absolutely would have done that, and then probably <laughs> destroyed my body. So, um, yeah. Did I tell you that I went into Havelina injured, or did well, I no, leave you that out? I said to you, what's the one piece of advice you'd give? And you said, don't go into it with any injury. And yeah. I was like, ah, <laughs> that is the one thing I was going to do. So yeah. you gave me the strength to pull back. And I'm really glad I did that because I would have been in trouble. It's talking to myself. I did that for so long. And, you know, Carson, my husband, has he's the one that kind of forced me to get Mm -hmm. my hip fixed. Mm -hmm. And I went into my last, like, the you know, one of the many races where I realized this needs to change was Havelina. I was like, oh, this is... During it, I was like, I just need to get the surgery. And then, of course, after, I'm like, what's next? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so... As we do. Yeah. (laughs) Taking a step back was good, though. I yeah. think I'm done. And now, now that I remember what racing healthy is like or mm-hmm. running healthy, I don't think I'll ever do that again. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you didn't race injured. It yes. not, Thank you. A 10% injury, you know, comes mm-hmm. to life in uh, these longer distances. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate it so much. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dina. Thank you. Woohoo. Yay. Thank you. You look around.